federal employees have family and professional lives. They also have financial lives. Today, we're inaugurating a monthly talk with a man who has long experience in federal financial management and investment strategies. He was a regular on our show, Your Turn, hosted by the late Mike Causey. Now he'll be a monthly guest here on The Federal Drive. We welcome certified financial planner Art Stein. Art, good to have you with us. Good to be here. Thank you very much. And it's good to have your voice continue with us and your expertise. Today, I wanted to ask you about the issue of approaching retirement or maybe not approaching retirement or maybe already in retirement. The issue comes up of whether to retire that mortgage because it seems like, golly, my monthly payments will go down and the house will be paid off. It's a psychological relief. Is it really a good financial strategy? Okay. Well, Tom, thank you very much. Yeah, people feel like they want to pay off their debts. Uh, especially as they approach retirement when they're in retirement. I understand that. But we look at it as, a, you know, what is the financial advantages and disadvantages of doing that? And I think something that people don't think about is that, you know, paying off your mortgage early means you're increasing the amount of home equity that you have, home equity being the difference between the value of the home and the amount you owe on your mortgage. And home equity has a 0% rate of return. It does not earn any interest, dividends, or capital gains. It would only go up if the house increases in price, but that's not a rate of return. Really, home equity is equivalent to a savings account with a 0% interest rate. And if you put another $100,000 in that savings account, then it's going to be worth more. But no one would say, well, gee, the savings account earned money. It didn't. It doesn't earn any money because we've said it has a 0% rate of return. Home equity is the same way. No rate of return. And it means that um, that's a lot of money to have with a 0% rate of return. And the other thing, of course, is that Well, let you... me just challenge you for a moment on that, because if the value of a home is going up, and pretty much everywhere in the country they are, how does that not translate to a return on investment or a return on the, on the savings? It's just like putting extra money in a savings account. It, it doesn't have a rate of return. have to think about it. Well, if the home doesn't go up in value, then the home equity doesn't. The home can be considered an investment, but home equity, an investment where you might have, hopefully you're going to have an increase in value, you're going to have an investment return, if you want to think of it that way, but not the home equity. All right. Then on the other hand, by not paying it off, you're paying interest, so it's a cost. Absolutely. But think about this, the interest that you pay every year, the actual value of that interest goes down. You know, if you're a federal employee, uh, your salary's going up. If you're an annuitant, if you're retired, your annuity's going up and your mortgage isn't going up. And also mortgages, they leave consumers, they leave mortgage holders with great flexibility because if interest rates go up like they have just recently, People with low interest rate mortgage, they just keep them and they're happy. If interest rates go down, you can refinance your mortgage at a lower rate. I mean, that's the type of flexibility leaving uh, a mortgage holder in the driver's seat that you don't have with many other types of financial instruments or investments. 
We were speaking with certified financial planner Art Stein. And then there's also the tax implications, right, of having your mortgage payments, the interest part of that. Yeah, some of that is tax deductible. And, you know, that's certainly very helpful. But to me, the key thing is, where's the money coming from to pay off the mortgage early? Like maybe every month you're putting in an extra $300 in payments. Well, every month you could just make a $300 investment. You could put it in an extra 300 in the TSP if you haven't maxed out. You could put it in Series I savings bonds and get a current interest rate of 9.6%. You could put it in the stock market, do dollar cost averaging. And you're going to end up, I think, with a lot more funds available to spend. Because let's face it, home equity is not easy to spend. If you want to take money out of your home equity to spend, you either have to get another mortgage or you have to take out a loan, which is kind of the equivalent, or you have to sell the house. So, you know, I mean, I had a client who wanted to pay off his mortgage. I explained this to him. He felt very strongly emotionally, didn't want to do that. So that was fine. He took a couple hundred thousand out of investments, another hundred thousand out of his emergency funds, paid it off. And a year later, his daughter got married. He needed $75,000 to pay for the wedding. We had to sell even more investments to pay for the wedding. And, you know, if he hadn't paid off his mortgage, he would have that money. Right. Or he could say to the daughter, there's a better instrument for you called the ELOPE. Yes. Yeah. Elope. The, <laughs> pay yeah. for your own wedding. A, the ELOPE, the elope. Very important financial instrument for some people, Tom. And. I guess, too, if you have, say, the cash like this man did to pour into the house to pay it off, you could also pour it all into those high percentage bonds you mentioned. Yeah. Well, there's a limit on how many I-series savings bonds you can buy, but you could put some in there. You could put some in CDs. You could put some into investments like stock funds and bond funds and um, give yourself a more diversified portfolio that's going to grow faster over time probably than your home equity because your house isn't going to go up fast enough. Historically, homes have not increased at as high a rate as the stock market has. I mean, I just think it leaves you in a better diversified position, more easily able to pay for investment needs not met by your annuity and Social Security. It's almost as if the inflation has created a new era of CDs. They haven't exactly come back, but some of these high-yield short-term instruments you mentioned, they weren't around a few years ago. All of a sudden, bank accounts uh, are paying higher rates of return. CDs are paying higher rates of return. Bond funds are paying higher rates of return. But, Tom, we have to keep in mind, you know, that retirement, it's all about generating the income you need to spend to uh, supplement your annuity and Social Security. And especially FERS employees, they do have a cost of living adjustment, but anytime inflation's more than 2%, doesn't fully compensate them for the inflation. So the purchasing power of their FERS annuity is decreasing over time. And Social Security, of course, has a full cost of living adjustment. Sure. But uh, it means that FERS employees are very likely to need money either in the beginning or subsequently uh, from their investments. And that's why the TSP is so important. Right. And I wanted to ask you, too, while we have you, just to clarify, under the FERS system, how big 
is your annuity relative to what your salary was and what percentage of Social Security do you get? What proportion of it relative to if you'd been in the private sector? Well, the annuity, you know, is approximately 1% for each year you worked. It's not exactly that. Social Security, you know, it's just going to depend. But a key part of financial planning is, of course, calculating or having your human resources calculate the annuity that you're going to receive, getting getting on the Social Security website, finding out how much Social Security you're going to receive, and comparing it to what your expenses are going to be in retirement. And for many people, their expenses are going to be higher than their guaranteed income. They need to start taking money out of their investments. For most feds, their key investment is a thrift savings plan. And the question is, are they able to afford to retire when they want to if they need to take a small amount out of their investments, say less than 3 or 4%, you know, they look pretty good. If they all, you know, if they needed to take 10% out of their investments, I mean, that's risky unless they're, you know, like in their 80s. But if they're like 62 and they want to retire and they're going to need 7 8% from their investments, I'd say that's a risky strategy. But in the meantime, don't worry. Don't have that psychological attachment to the idea of burning the mortgage. I guess that's that's an right. image in the American mind. Absolutely. But it may not a mortgage the- party. You burn <laughs> the mortgage. You tell the banker to go to hell, and uh, you know you're free. But we're not free from inflation. We're not free from the need to have supplemental investments. Art Stein is a certified financial planner from Bethesda, Maryland. Great to have you with us. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. 
Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, this, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is 
to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. 
And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.